This week on Excelsior Journeys, my guest is New York Times bestselling author Kevin J. Anderson. In addition to all of the amazing works that Kevin has done for very familiar properties such as Dune, Star Wars, Star Trek, DC Comics, The X-Files, and so on. He is also responsible for so much original work, and two of those works are the centerpiece of a brand new Kickstarter campaign focusing on the re-release of his book, Dragon Business, and the release of its sequel, Skeleton in the Closet. Kevin is here to tell us all about that and more. JLD, do the honors. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. So would you say that that's kind of like the lightning bolt moment for you? And that's why I taught myself how to draw, was actually the little mermaid of drawing stills of Ariel. I've got better things to do tonight than die. jumped out of his chair and said, who the F is this? I remember walking out of the theater and saying, I'm going to write Halloween I'm rather impressed with your research. Rarely do people ask me about children in the corner. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just do it. You know, throw some spaghetti against the wall. This is George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. This is George Soroy. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for tuning in for over 180 episodes. We're getting closer and closer to the big 200. There's so much going on here with this show and everything around it. The novels are in search of a new home and all love and thanks go to my agent for everything she's been doing. The audio drama rehearsals are going great. We're getting ready for two performances on the Clubhouse app. Part one and part two are going to be read over two Sunday afternoons in March, and I'm going to have more details about that in the coming weeks. So in the meantime, please make sure you have the Clubhouse app on your phone so you can listen in. Also, the Once Upon a Podcast Network is getting closer and closer to its launch. More information is going to be relayed when part two of the network's two-part interview is featured on Excelsior Journeys later on next month. My guest that week will be co-founder Stacey Rourke. So to say 2023 has been busy would be quite the understatement. And someone who is just as busy as my guest for this week. Ever since Kevin J. Anderson burst onto the science fiction literary scene in 1988 with his novel Resurrection Inc., which earned him a Bram Stoker Award nomination, he's gone on to write or co-write over 100 different works, whether as novels, anthologies, or comics. He's been involved in quite a few properties you may recognize, X-Files, Star Wars, Star Trek, Dune, DC Comics. And he's currently in the last two weeks of a very successful Kickstarter campaign for his two latest books, Dragon Business and its sequel, Skeleton in the Closet. I hope you all contribute to this one, and I'm really looking forward to Kevin telling us all about these books. So it is my honor to present to you New York Times bestselling author, Kevin J. Anderson. Kevin, how are you, sir? I'm doing great, George. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, this is going to be this is going to be a lot of fun, and I am just very appreciative that uh, that you came on here, and I am just really excited about the Kickstarter the Kickstarter campaign because when I took a look at it and also put in my contribution as well, I wanted to I saw that uh, that you've gotten a lot of really great support for this. I'm really looking looking forward to this. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? It, it's really fun, and this is only the second one I've ever run. I'm kind of new to this because I've always – well, I did my own indie published books anyway, but my background is mainly with tour books and bantam books and, and all the, the big old New York publishers. And this whole concept of, of letting the fans help support you for the books that you want to write 
is just it, it's a game changer to me, and I think it's really terrific. So, I mean, I'm I'm really most known for writing my big, huge, epic science fiction stuff, my my Dune novels with Brian Herbert, my big Star Wars stuff, my Saga of Seven Sons. I've got two big fat fantasy trilogies that are out there, thereby proving that some authors actually do finish their trilogies when they promise that they're going to. And I, I feel seen on that because I'm still working on part three of my own. So, <laughs> uh, Well, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a pretty prolific writer, as everybody probably knows. But, oh, very and much so, so, yeah. But, but to go from that, though, one of the other things that I really enjoy doing after writing, and I've written a lot of horror stuff and, and big, huge blockbusters my my big science fiction things are like game of thrones in space with millions of planets and 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 the fate of the universe at stake and sometimes i just like to be funny i mean I, yeah. i've got a a pretty snarky sense of humor and i can i can be as stupid as the next guy when i want to be and, <laughs> and so a while ago i started writing a whole series featuring my character dan shamble zombie pi and it's kind of like the Rockford Files meets the Adams family. It's a, he's a he's a detective, but he's a zombie, and he solves crimes with werewolves and mummies and ghosts, and and it's just all dumb jokes and stupid plot twists. And and I just wrote that after I had finished this big honking epic eight hundred page science fiction thing, and I loved it. I just felt I I wanted to do this fun, silly, fast paced, and I sent it to my agent. And, and, and he said, well, what's this? You, you can't write humorous stuff. I said, well, did you read it? He says, yes, it's hilarious, but Kevin J. Anderson can't write humorous stuff. I went, well, I um. did. <laughs> <laughs> and so he, he sent it to my regular publishers and they said, well, this is great, but Kevin J. Anderson can't write humorous stuff. <laughs> and, and I went, but, but it's funny. I want to write these. And, yeah. So we did get to a another publisher, Kensington Books, who mm -hmm. they released the first the first three, and then they lost interest. and And I kept I gave them data. I said, "But wait, every one of these fun urban fantasy series—the Jim Butchers, the Sherilyn Kenyons, the the oh, I'm blanking on some of the other. Like, never mind. There's a whole bunch of like fun fun urban fantasies. And Patricia Briggs—that's the other one that I was trying to think of. And and mm -hmm. I go. And I know all these people and I wrote them all and they, and they never started taking off until like book six. Mm -hmm. And so my, my publisher wanted to give up after book three. And I said, mm. well, no, no, we got to keep this going. And so they, they grudgingly did book four. They paid me half as much for book four and they mm. came out with, I think that's the best one of all called slimy underbelly. And, nice. and it came out with as much enthusiasm as you might expect. And then they dropped the series. Uh, and I said, but I like this. And so yeah. I I published two short story collections in my I have my own publishing house, a little small press, Wordfire Press. And mm -hmm. I published the, the short story collections, but I wanted to do more of this. And then I finally wrote another book, Tastes Like Chicken, which is kind of a it was a labor of love. I published it and I just put it out there, but but it was for me, but it wasn't really it wasn't feasible for me to keep doing stuff like this because I got to pay the bills with my writing and, and this yeah. was more of a labor of love. And finally I, I got to talking to other people who had run some Kickstarters 
Uh, and and yes, Brandon Sanderson is a very good friend of mine. And and <laughs> they said, well, if and I kept getting fan letters on the Dan Chamble books, and yeah. they everybody loved them. They wanted they want to know where the next one is, and I'm going, well, I I don't know if I can do one. And so then I I ran a Kickstarter a, a year ago or a, a last May. I ran mm-hmm. a Kickstarter for a new Dan Chamble novel, and and it. Blew the hinges off the doors. I mean, everybody loved nice. it. wasn't a Brandon level 42 million thing, but it funded yeah. at, at uh, 25 times what I asked for. Wow. And I went, holy crap, I could do this. I mean, I, I this is worth me writing this book instead of something else. And so I, I loved that. And I will, it when the year comes up, like next May or something like that, I'll probably do another Dan Chamble novel because I want to keep keep doing the series. But this is this is probably the longest answer to a question that you've ever had on your on your show. You, but, you'd be surprised. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I mean, I feel that I I need to to kind of give the background. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In, in addition to the, in addition to the the funny stuff in the Dan Chamble series, I also did a really funny fantasy series. It's uh, the first novel called The Dragon Business. And it's kind of like the Princess Bride meets Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. It it is a it's a group of medieval con men and a former princess who mm-hmm. go from kingdom to kingdom selling their services as dragon slayers, but there's no dragon. So they they'll it's all a scam that they put these nice. big reptilian footprints around in the mud and then they burn <laughs> a couple of peasant, peasant hovels down. And they've actually got a couple of stuffed taxidermy crocodile heads that they've stuck deer antlers to. And they go, look, we've killed a dragon before. <laughs> and they, and they and it's a scam. They go into the king and they say, well, you got a dragon problem and we'll kill it for 100 gold pieces. And, and they take the money, they leave the taxidermy head, and then they go off to the next kingdom and they, they pull it off. And, and that all works just great until it turns out there really is a dragon and they got to do something about it. And then there are more plot twists and turns. And and I always wanted to write that book. And I finally got the opportunity a few years ago when Amazon wanted to relaunch some or to launch something that they called their Kindle serials that they wanted, mm-hmm. like the old Charles Dickens stuff. They wanted to yeah. commission a writer to basically post a chapter a week, every single week, and people would pay 99 cents or something for, for each chapter and they would sign up for it. Mm-hmm. And I'm a fast writer and reliable. And I said, I'd love to do this dragon business book. And they said, great, do it. So I did it as the serial and people people signed up for it and they read it. And then Amazon has their own print imprint called 47 North, where they publish print books. Mm-hmm. And they came out with the book version of the dragon business, which I'm, and that's their cover. It It's a cute cover. It's a little goofy, but it's, it's a, fun cover. Yeah. And they published the book, but if your readers think a little bit about it, there is no real love lost between brick and mortar bookstores and amazon.com. Yeah. And so all of the bookstores where I would go and do book signings at for my Dune novels or Star Wars novels and stuff, well, they didn't carry any of the books cuz they didn't want to support Amazon. And mm-hmm. so the dragon business kind of it I mean, it did okay. It came out, and eventually, Amazon gave me the rights back for it. And That's uh, good. and so, and then, which is not easy sometimes, but but I've got a good relationship with them. And and mm-hmm. so, my own Wordfire Press, we reprinted the Dragon Business with with our own cover, which is that, and it's cute and it's colorful and it's it's a cartoony dragon thing. But 
it, it wasn't it wasn't what I wanted to do. And I always wanted to do a sequel to it. I wanted to make nice. with this gang of con men. I wanted to do another caper and another one and, and to, to build it up. And I already, I had the idea for it. And in fact, the, the idea was our, our gang of con men are off in a castle. They're, they're doing their, their little scam. And, and, and then an, an army of not too bright orcs invades the castle and takes it over and our guys have to hide in the secret passages and they're trapped in this castle that's overrun by a bunch of dumb orcs. Mm-hmm. And the only way that they can get out of this is if they haunt the castle and scare the orcs away. Nice. And so it's kind of it's kind of like Die Hard in a castle where they have to figure <laughs> out the secret passages and they set up haunted ghost appearances and, and things like that. So that was my sequel, The Skeleton in the Closet. And, but no, nobody, no, none of my other publishers were going to publish a sequel to the dragon business. Mm -hmm. First off, Amazon published the first one and they, they weren't going to do that. And they didn't have the rights to the dragon business. So they weren't going to publish a sequel to it. And the only way that, that this was a feasible thing for me to spend, I write two or three books a year. Mm -hmm. And if I was going to make this one of the two or three books a year that I write, I I needed to find some other way and mm-hmm. I went back to the Kickstarter thing and we we put together this campaign and I really wanted to do this book this is I just want to I'm going on and on but I want to emphasize that by Kickstarter is a game changer for for people like me or for other creators that yeah. I with the support of the backers I can write the novel that I really want to write mm-hmm. rather than like uh, chasing down. I want to write a My Little Pony novel or something like that, which <laughs> right. um, I, I haven't actually chased that one down. But, but, but <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a lot of a lot of I can only write two or three books a year. I've got ideas mm-hmm. for like 100 of them. So yeah. which ones do I do? And this allows me to do that. And and so long story long what we launched the kickstarter was a little more than a week ago uh mm-hmm. we funded in 13 minutes flat mm-hmm. and and right now as we record this we're at i think thir- 14 times what what our ask was the it's, ask it's huge the- it's a it's a very big success well and well brandon <clears throat> sanderson's was 42 million i know we're well yeah. close to that one but Unless, unless among your listeners, if if only forty two of them pitch in a million dollars each, we'll make it. It'll be well, maybe maybe that's setting my my goals a little too. You heard it here first, listeners. Come on. <laughs> so, but, but but the way a Kickstarter does is as as people chip in, that they'll. I mean, everybody gets like an ebook of the new novel, Skeleton in the Closet, mm-hmm. yep. and. For all of those people who haven't read the Dragon <clears throat> Business yet, they can get the two book ebook set of the Dragon Business and and Skeleton, or they can get the print versions, or the hardcover versions, or the autographed versions, and they're all in the different different tiers of things. But but here's something that, and I hope you can strip this in or put it in. But we, mm-hmm. I finally got the cover art that I wanted, yeah. and and I invested ahead of time before the Kickstarter. I've got this great team of artists and designers 
that have worked with me before, they redesigned all of the Dan Shamble covers for my previous Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. And they, they do brilliant work. And I came to them with the funny dragon business concept and gave them the ideas. And and they just did a, a fabulous new cover for the dragon business and a fabulous cover for Skeleton in the Closet. They, they just knocked it out of the park. But... I was going to run this Kickstarter last November. I wanted it all done before Thanksgiving, before people got distracted. In fact, I was I was kind of hoping to have rewards given to people by Christmas. But mm-hmm. the artists didn't get the art done on time. That mm-hmm. they, They're always really good and really reliable, but they were delayed this time. And, and while they had a good excuse, I, I didn't mention the fact that they're all in Ukraine. Oh, wow. And so they were a little busy. This team of artists in Ukraine asked me for a little extra time because they kept losing power because they're being bombed and they're running from air raid sirens and they're they're hiding in bomb shelters where I I understand that internet reception isn't that great down in a bomb shelter somewhere. So yeah. so of course I gave them the extra time. We just moved the the Kickstarter to January and and just um, that cover art that they did is just fabulous and and we. In fact, as as a couple of rewards in the Kickstarter, we even used it as T-shirt art or coffee mug art and stuff like that. So, so that's that's something that we put everything together, and and it it's not simple. I mean, there's weeks worth of work before I launch the Kickstarter. I'm recording videos and putting all this stuff up. This is another really exciting thing for me because you have things called stretch goals that as you hit a certain point, then everybody gets a free book. And as you hit another point, then everybody gets something else. And, and you keep, you keep setting up little, it's like moving the goalpost, I guess, but you keep, yeah. you know, everybody gets them. So, so you keep, you keep moving it. And one thing that I had set up as sort of a challenge that if we reached a, a certain point, $12,500, if we reached that point, then I would put together a collection of all of my humorous science fiction, fantasy, and horror stories. I'd just go, I published 150 stories in my career, yeah. and I would just go through and pull out all the, I've got some really funny fantasy ones and really funny science fiction ones. And so I'm, I promised that I'd put together a brand new collection that is only available to the backers. Oh, that's great. That and, and well, I mean, I'll, I'll put it out like much later in the year to general yeah. public, but they all get it first. And and we blew right past that 12,500 level. So so then I went back to my Ukrainians and I said, I need another cover. So they did this <laughs> fantastic cover of really funny. Uh, I'll send it to you a really funny thing about the funny business. And and so they're doing it. So it, it's it's the backers and supporters are are not just cheering me on, but they're making it possible for me to create things that I wouldn't have done otherwise. And another thing, as we hit like twice that at the 25,000 level, which we just passed, Mm -hmm. I said I would book the time and go into the audiobook recording studio and I would record the audio of Skeleton in the Closet. Nice. And and so it's set up. I've already written, recorded, I think, seven of my audiobooks, but... Mm-hmm. And so I know it's not a small, trivial thing. It, it's, no, it's not. Yeah, it's probably for for the skeleton of the closet audiobook. I will probably be in the studio fifteen hours recording it, and then I got to mm-hmm. proof it all, which is probably another eleven hours, and then I got to go back to the record to do the pickups where I messed up a sentence or something like that. 
Mm-hmm. So it it's a it's a probably thirty hours of my time to get this audiobook out, but yeah. I can't say no when they hit that that level of support. So I I'll be doing that. Oh, one one silver lining about the Ukrainians having a delay for a month or two on the art mm-hmm. is I just went out and wrote the book anyway. So the draft is already done. I it, it's. The first draft is done. I have to edit it and polish it up, but mm-hmm. that means I've kind of got a head start, and I I plan to be able to deliver it to everybody before my promised date. I, you always build in enough time in case in case yeah. like life happens and things get get delayed. But so that's that's the kick. But nobody can remember a URL. But but if you just go to Kickstarter and search for Kevin J. Anderson, it'll pop right up. So. And, we'll, and we'll have that link in the show notes as well. So that way people can who are listening here, they can just go ahead and click right on it, take you right over to it. And while that is still active, they'll be able to contribute and hopefully take advantage of, of the various stretch goals. I know I did. I'm, yeah. I made sure to, to be one of the contributors there. So thank you. So I'm, I uh, thank you. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, well, to all of this. And, and I'm, be a blast. I'm, I'm being, I'm being redundant here, but I do want to go back. Like I said, I'm, I'm going sure. to write a couple of books a year and it just depends on which book I, I choose to write. Yeah. And, and I, I look, well, do I do this one and that one? And this is like the, the passion project that I really wanted to do. Nice. No, it doesn't mean I don't enjoy the other books that I'm writing. It's just that which, which one should I go to? And, and this is maybe a good place to announce too, that, that I posted a couple of places, but Brian Herbert and I have just announced that we are doing a new Dune novel for 2023. Awesome. That, uh, this this one, the new movie part two comes out in November and this mm-hmm. book will come out right, right when the movie comes out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're on draft five now. So it's already written. Wow. We're in kind of the final polishing stages of it. And this is kind of a standalone prequel. It's called Princess of Dune. And it's the background, the backstories of Chani, the, his, his Fremen... Mm-hmm. wife and yeah. but, but she's not a wife and princess Irulan, who is his wife but not really his wife so right. the two women who are most important in the life of muadib is is so it's the intertwined stories of princess Irulan and and chani how they both grow up in vastly different situations and of course lots of action and sandworms and imperial politics and space battles and all that kind of stuff and Would, wouldn't um, have it any other way right <laughs> nope and so this is all set, I think, like two years before Dune. So the the characters are a couple of years younger than what you see them in. But but this is Ryan and I have been working together on the Dune books for oh I'm losing track like 25 years now together. Wow. wow. And we just we love doing them. And Frank Herbert created let's see 15 something like 20,000 years of history plus all these characters and. And so mm-hmm. there's there's plenty of room to explore. It's it's yeah. people are complaining. How can you keep writing Dune books? I'm going. Well, how could how could you stop Star Trek? I mean, there there's plenty yeah. of room to tell stories. And we've got this is the one that we're working on now. We don't have plans for more, but who knows? We're also doing getting into comics. I've worked a lot in comics before, and mm-hmm. we now are working with Abrams Books to do a full three volume scene by scene adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune, the original. Oh wow. And the first two volumes of those graphic novels are already out. 
And the third one, the artists are busy working on. And just last week, volume one got picked as one of the top 100 graphic novels of all time. So of no, all time, wow. Of all time. But we're working with like the greatest science fiction novel of all time. So we have yeah. pretty good material to start with. But mm. so the comics and graphic novels are pretty cool with Boom Studios where adapting our initial Dune prequels, House Atreides, House Harkonnen, and House Carino. Uh, mm -hmm. Those are 12 issues, each one, and we're in the middle of House Harkonnen right now. So nice. lots of Dune stuff, lots of comics. Let's see. I mean, I'm, so the Dune book is one of the books I'm doing this, this year, and Skeleton in the Closet is the other. And, well, I mean, Dune, we wrote last year pretty much, and we're just editing it now. Right. And hope to do another Dan Shamble book this year. And if I have room, I've got this whiplash, of like a Lovecraftian science fiction horror novel that I want to write. So wow. I'm I'm a fanboy. I I like to read everything. And I yeah. I like the funny fantasy. I like Game of Thrones. And I like Star Trek and I like Star Wars and I like Alien and and mm -hmm. it's just I grew up immersed in all this stuff and and to me, it's like paying it forward to the next generation of readers if I can get them hooked on stuff. Absolutely. And it's kind of like you basically just kind of helping out everyone that are that are that are running those those IPs by saying just like, well, there's this part of the universe that hasn't yet been discovered. Why don't I go ahead and explore that? And then that can you can take that and open it up and see what what else is in there. And so like, that's, it seems like a really, a really fun way to, way to look at everything. All of the, you know, all this diff right. these different projects. Well, it was way back in, I think 1992 when my editor at Bantam Books called me up and said, Kevin, do you like Star Wars? And yeah. I mean, I had written, I think six books of just my own original books and techno thrillers and things. And mm -hmm. I, I hadn't, I knew, I mean, I knew people who wrote Star Trek books and I had read some Star Trek books, but, mm -hmm. but I didn't have any clue how you got invited to do one or, or anything yeah. like that. And so this call from Bantam just came from out of the blue. And because I, I don't know if Timothy Zahn's first book had even come out yet. There were no Star Wars books. The, the, oh, yeah, the 90, that was 91, right? Yeah. I think yeah. Was something like when, so, the Empire so around then. And, and I mean, there's a lot of Star Trek books, but Star Wars as a franchise was basically dead. I mean, after yeah. Return of the Jedi, you'd from, which was 84, I think. Uh, 83, 84 yeah. to 91, there was nothing in Star Wars. Mm -hmm. That, that it was, it was as gone as Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it, Nobody did anything. And so this was a total surprise when when my editor said, do you want to write three sequels to Star Wars? And I went, well, yeah, I'd love to write three sequels to Star Wars. <laughs> That's great. And That's that was kind of the snowball starting to roll. And, and, and because I am intrinsically uber fanboy. I mean, mm -hmm. I went to see Star Wars in the theater when it first came out, and I watched every episode of Star Trek over and over and over again. And I, I dove into every sort of fandom. I went to science fiction conventions, and and I had my Boba Fett action figures and and everything that you needed to have. And so, if somebody asked me to write in Star Wars, I was just head over heels. This was cool. I got to. Yeah. do this. And, and then that led to other stuff. I was Chris Carter, the creator of X-Files 
who mm-hmm. read my Star Wars books and then asked me to write X-Files books for him. And then wow. that led to me doing some movie novelizations. I did mm-hmm. some, let's just say my books were better than the movies, but that didn't mean that, <laughs> that, great. that I, I did the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and I did Supernova and I did Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. And and I, we did a couple of Titan AE books and things. Oh, wow. Which was great. I mean, this this was it allowed me to like play in other people's sandboxes, and it, it increased my writing skills. I learned how to write. So be, before I got asked to write Star Wars, I was writing court a sort of edgy, angry young man, anti-hero, grim, dystopian kind of stuff. And then I had to write Star Wars and like, wait a minute, Star Wars has to be colorful and fun and there's romance and there's humor and, and everything's action packed and fast paced. And, and I had to learn how to do that, which was greatly to the benefit of my writing skill. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I just, I really enjoyed doing that. And, and boy, the, that's, that's widening the doors to a whole fan base that my, my earlier novels were all very critically acclaimed, which meant they got good reviews, but nobody read them. And mm-hmm. with Star Wars, everybody read them, and then they picked up my other books. So it it certainly which certainly which is out. which kind of which kind of brings me back a little bit to the the funnier not works that you wanted to put out that they were that uh, the publishers and your agent were saying that oh Kevin J Anderson doesn't write this. Well, you've kind they've kind of seen that like Kevin J Anderson has an evolution going on like as as an author and kevin j anderson does not just go in one direction and so like that's one thing that i'm curious that that why they didn't see that in like themselves well they're very and and this kind of goes back to before amazon and and social media and online stuff all of the all of the publishers and bookstores Mm -hmm. everything was pretty well siloed that that science fiction was over here and horror Mm -hmm. was over here and fantasy was over here. And you, if you wrote a science fiction horror novel, they didn't know where, which shelf to stick it on. And so they just didn't carry it. Mm. And, and it Barnes and Noble had what was on the shelves. Yeah. And if you were a science fiction reader, you walked into the bookstore and you looked at the shelves and you picked what you wanted to read. You mm-hmm. couldn't type in keywords to find science fiction horror. Yeah. You couldn't type in vampire steampunk detective comedies, which you can do now. Mm-hmm. So you can find your audience. But also, I've got a lot of the different fan bases, and I've got pretty active social media stuff. And what has happened is I've built up my own Kevin J. Anderson fans who will read the books that I write mm-hmm. rather than publishers. If you look at old, old, well, it pretty much happens still today. If, if you look, if you buy a, a Bantam book by a certain author and right. you look in the front and it says other Bantam books by author, they won't mm-hmm. list the books that any other publisher did. Oh, of course not. Yeah. Anything to try to cross over the, the readers Mm-hmm. And and they don't want to promote anybody else's books. And so if I was if I was doing one type of book for one publisher, they didn't they didn't know how to categorize a humorous zombie book from the guy that wrote their science fiction space opera books. 
Mm. And they they didn't know where to shelve it because if you go into the science fiction section in a Barnes and Noble, you will see my science fiction books, but right. you won't see my zombie PI books. They'll be shelved somewhere different. And mm-hmm. my Star Wars books, which are the biggest sellers, they will be shelved in a completely different place. Right. And, and in fact, my Dune books are shelved under Brian Herbert because his name comes first. Mm-hmm. And so, but if you look on Amazon and you type up my name, all of these books show up. Yeah. It really helps for an author to build their own readership and fan base. And I have a newsletter and all these other things that, that keeps people together that, that previously in the old publishing world, they did not encourage and did not implement. And so my, in the worst possible circumstances, like my X-Files readers didn't even know that my Star Wars books existed or vice versa, just because they're shelved in different things. And so so this kind of circles back to this is why Kickstarter is such a game changer because I can bring my own people together to do a book that that I really want to do and they'll support me rather than a publisher saying, well, but Kevin Anderson doesn't write funny stuff. I mean, so. <laughs> so I'm I'm really curious to know, like with the amazing career that you have, like as as an author. I'm really curious because you were talking about before the like how you were you grew up really just kind of steeped into all this this amazing science fiction and going to the conventions and seeing all of it and experiencing all of it for yourself. Was that something that happened all the way back in childhood? Because like the one thing that I love to hear from with with my guests is what I like to call the lightning bolt moment. And that's that moment where you just kind of experience something or watch something, see something, meet someone or something, and you say, that's the path I want to go on. That's the kind of person that I want to be. So what was it about this amazing world of science fiction that really just kind of grabbed your attention and made you think like, I want to not only, not only do I want to like get more into it, I want to be a part of it, which you most certainly are now. My, I know exactly what it was. My lightning bolt moment was when I was five years old and my parents let me watch the old movie of the war of the worlds. Nice. and I was a five-year-old kid, and, and I watched this, and I was just so blown away by the Martian invasion and the heat rays and 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 then the twist that the Martians just die from the common cold in the end. And I just I just thought, wow, this is the coolest thing ever. And, and I wanted to tell stories like that, but I was five years old, and I didn't know how to write yet. So I drew little pictures, and I would tell stories out loud. And yeah. then I... Ever since then, I would watch, I mean, it's five, but I would watch whatever monster movies I could watch, the sci-fi cinemas and and kind of build up to, to I mean, I, I was at the age where Lost in Space seemed even good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started like writing my own stories. I bought a typewriter when I was 10 years old because I wanted to be a writer. And, nice. and, but I lived in this little isolated small town in Wisconsin. So I was the only nerd I knew. I mean, I had comic books and, and my, my cousins who lived next door, they were kind of, I mean, they were farmers and they liked football and, and I didn't relate to them very much at all. And, and it was weird growing up in total isolation. I was like Luke Skywalker standing there out in the middle of the desert wanting to go to Toshi Station. And, yeah. and, and then finally, when I was in high school, there was, I, I went to my first science fiction convention. And then I started, this was literally pen pal stuff at the time. I got into the small press magazines, which were 
like like fanzines or or little little things and i've got some stories published and nice. and then i really started getting more then i i moved from wisconsin i got a job in california so so when i nice. when i left wisconsin and went to the East Bay, San Francisco area, it was like Dorothy opening up that black and white door into the colorful world of Oz. And, <laughs> and, and suddenly there were science fiction fans all over the place and people who really got what I was trying to do. And and I was I was on my way. Boy, I, I love that. Yeah. So it's like these are my people. Like this is this is my this is my tribe. Yeah. I was I was a changeling and I didn't know where the rest of the dark elves were. <laughs> Now, did did you get, ever get get a chance to meet like Forey Ackerman? Because it sounds like he oh, was yes. like the well, he, it's I, like he was just like the Pied Piper of 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 that whole of that whole genre, right? Well, so I as a kid in Wisconsin, I mean, we didn't really have access to my would I would get comic books whenever I found them, but our little teeny town drugstore kind of intermittently got leftover comics whenever the distributor had some mm -hmm. and, and it wasn't, and I, I didn't get them in the mail. It wasn't like there was something and I would find like used science fiction books and, and pick them up. But one of the things that I, I grabbed whenever I could was maybe every once every four or five months, a copy of famous monsters of film line would show yes. up on the magazine rack. Nice. And, and also Vampirella, the the great graphic novel, mm -hmm. and, and oh, I love those stories. My parents were a little askance because she's very scantily clad with oh, quite, quite. But, but I was reading because she's this vampire stranded on Earth, and 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 I thought it was interesting <laughs> stories. But yeah, remember, I was a nerdy kid. I wasn't going to get a girlfriend anyway, so it didn't matter. But we also had Famous Monsters of Filmland, and I just ate that stuff up, and I. Mm -hmm. I, I want, would look at all these pictures of black and white monster movies. And, and, and again, I'm, I'm way older than most of your listeners remember, but, but you mm -hmm. couldn't just go on Netflix or Amazon and say, I want to watch the Valley of Guanji. Right. No, you had to, you, every Sunday when the newspaper came, you had the weekly TV guide and I mm -hmm. would comb through that thing to find any time that there was some movie I wanted to watch. You yep. couldn't pick and choose. You had to watch whatever they brought you. Yeah. And you had to hope it was not at two in the morning because my parents wouldn't let me stay up till two in the morning. And, right. and so I, I went, I, I did read through famous monsters of film land. And, and then, so that was a real uh, seminal thing in there. And so then I moved out and then I became published author and then successful author. And I'm, 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 I'm sat in meetings face to face with George Lucas. And I knew a whole bunch wow. of, actors from Star Trek and I meeting with Chris Carter on the X-Files stuff. And, and one of my very closest friends was Neil Peart, the drummer from the rock band Rush. And, mm -hmm. and so I, I, I know how to handle myself around, around really famous people. And I've met a lot of them. And I got to say at a, at a Baycon, I think it was a Bay area science fiction convention. Mm -hmm. uh, I was sitting in the green room and I sat down and had breakfast with Forrest J. Ackerman, oh. and I could barely speak. <laughs> I was so geeked out to mm -hmm. be with next to Uncle Forey. Yep. I, I was I was tongue tied like I never was in front of George Lucas or actors or anything else because this was Forrest J. Ackerman, mm -hmm. and and he just he was like the 
he was the original nerd, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. the original fanboy. And and I and I since I didn't get to know him very well, but I was on a couple of panels with him, and and I got to talk with him and stuff. So it was that was kind of like a a boyhood dream come true. I'm trying to think of like different people that I had met in in the past because I had I had a a very fun experience with meeting Stan Lee back in 2008 when I was getting ready to start my novel of this character that I created back in 92 mm-hmm. and his name just happens to be Excelsior so getting to actually talk to him about that very very briefly cuz he was doing a signing and I just it just the words just kind of spilled out when I said it. I just said, Stan, I just want to say thank you so much for not only creating all these great characters, but inspiring me to create my own. And he looks up at me and like with this big smile and just goes, Oh, great, more competition. Yeah. And, so, and then I got to tell him that the moment that one character was specifically inspired by him, and then I leaned closer and I just went, His name is Excelsior. Huge smile on his face, just, oh, that's great, and shook my hand and wished me luck on it. Closest I'll ever get to a blessing from the Pope. So that was like, that, that was, that to me was a moment that I thought I was going to be like that. I'm trying to think of like, if there was anyone like John Williams, like if I ever have a chance to actually like share space with him, I would probably be just as tongue tied. It's like, what do you say to someone like Forey, who had, who had basically kind of offered you a doorway into this? amazing world. Same thing with John Williams for me. First piece of music I ever remember hearing is the overture to Star Wars. So like so those those moments you you never you never get rid of them. You never lose them. And it's a good thing too because those really kind of keep us in that in that frame of mind. You know what I mean? Well, and that that's something that's really special about our genre because we have so many opportunities for the fans to really get close to their they're idols. Yeah. And like we have so many comic cons or writers conventions or I mean, if you almost anybody who's a writer in the science fiction field, you can probably find a way to they're all on social media and they're all running their own accounts. It's not like they have like publicity routine, publicity companies running it for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you if you write to authors or you go to comic cons or you can you can get your photo taken with somebody and and you actually have that that close connection with the creators and and even a lot of the actors come to the comic cons um mm-hmm. i don't i mean how how would you be able to how would you if you if you were a huge fan of nathan fillion yeah there are ways that you can get your picture taken with nathan fillion and he'll shake your hand and you can get an autograph mhm if you were a huge fan of Steven Tyler from Aerosmith, yeah. would you have that opportunity? If you were a huge yeah. fan of Peyton Manning football, mm-hmm. how would you get that? I mean, it, right. our, our field offers these opportunities to have close interactions with, with the creators and the stars and the fans that I don't know is available in, in other like big areas of fandom. If you yeah. wanted to meet Mick Jagger, how would you meet Mick Jagger? There, I, right. I don't know. But if I wanted to meet, pick a Doctor Who or something, I can. I could find a way to go and get a photo and an autograph from that guy. Or just like, or even a conversation, just like this. This to me is is some is a true is a true win. Just to have you on here, and it's, well, it's a- been. One of the things is, well, I, I go to these comic cons a lot 
and I, mm-hmm. I often do book signings and I'm there. And then many of them have like green rooms where we all take a break and go back and, and grab lunch. They'll usually have sandwiches or a buffet or something. And you just, you just sit there and eat your lunch and other people sit at the table next to you. And, and I had one, it just, it blew me away. I was, I was just grabbing lunch and I sat next to Lee Majors and one of the village people and Jillian Anderson, just all sitting at the table having lunch. And it was just people at work having a quick lunch break and then going off. And, and it's just, (laughs) that was so fun. And I had, I had one really, really cool fanboy thing where I was at a, a, a convention in Florida and mm-hmm. I, I got to know, let's see, I'm trying to think of the, the sequence of this, but uh, anyway, it, it was Colin Baker, who was one of the Doctor Who's mm-hmm. and I, I know him in passing. So I was, I was sitting next to Colin Baker and then one of the Power Rangers sits down next to us and he introduces himself and then one of the stars of Green Arrow and Spartacus, one of the actresses, sits down and she starts telling me how much she loves reading my stuff. And then Marina Sirtis from Star Trek Next Generation mm-hmm. comes in, and I've never met her before. And, and and Colin Baker says, Marina, have you met Kevin? And I stand up to shake her hand. I said, hi, I'm a writer. And she looks at me and says, I know who you are, dear boy. I read your books. And so it's like wow, a fanboy moment like that more than anything else. And <laughs> that, oh man, I, I'm 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 so looking forward to like an opportunity like that to, to have for, to have for my own stuff. Like that's that's the dream right there to have that sort of that's that sort of recognition from someone that you already admire, like the fact that they already know you based on your work and here you are like ready to just say, Hey, I'm a big fan. And they're saying it right back to you. That's, that's the dream. That is what it's all about. It's really cool. So anyway, I, I just, I love what I'm doing. I I think it comes across that I'm, I'm kind of a fanboy, and I'm not just, Oh, I'll write this for the money. Well, no, it's because I love doing it. And, and and I really, I'm in the dream job. I mean, I I get to write Dune books with my best friend, Brian Herbert, and I get to Mm -hmm. write Superman books and Batman, and I get to work on the X-Files and, and all of that is great. And then I get to tell my own stories because the Kickstarter gives me that opportunity to, to do what I want to do. And fortunately I, I, I drink a fair amount of coffee so that I can keep it all going. <laughs> place. For those of you who can't see it, that is quite the big mug. Like this. Yeah. That's, yes. So I'm, I'm curious to know, like one, one major thing is as, as our time's kind of winding down, I'm really interested to know when all of this was going on, like as you were growing up, as you were getting that sort of feel for science fiction in general, you said before at, 10, you wanted to be a writer, but you finally had the opportunity to get your work out there with Resurrection Inc., correct? Right. That was my first. I mean, I had published some short stories before. In fact, a, a reasonable number of short stories, and I most of them were in small presses, but then I was also in fantasy and science fiction and and some, I was getting into pro markets. And then I got a job as a tech writer. That's why I moved out to the California is I was, I got a full time at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory where I was writing chemical protective clothing manuals and respirator safety guides and boring stuff. But Mm -hmm. 
I was getting a paycheck, a decent paycheck, because I was a government, I had a security clearance, I had retirement, I had medical benefits, and I was getting paid for writing. Yep. And that was really important to me. I mean, I, I could have gotten a job at Walmart or, or as an insurance salesman or whatever else I wanted to do, but I wanted to be a writer. And yeah. this way I got I got my paycheck every month and I knew in my heart that this was from my writing. Even mm -hmm. if it wasn't like humorous dragon slayers, it was respirator safety manuals, but it was still writing. And mm -hmm. every there was something really advantageous about that because day after day after day, I was polishing grammar and punctuation and cleaning up scientists' technical reports and stuff. And, and that all made me a better writer. And mm -hmm. I learned how to do publishing because we had to publish these annual reports. So I learned about book design and typography and fonts and printing presses and all of that, which I'm now using to great benefit for my own Wordfire Press publishing house. And that's how we're getting the all the items out for the Kickstarter. I mean, the, the, some people run Kickstarters and they are successful and then they don't have a clue how to publish a book at the end of it. Well, we, we already do that. So yeah. all of that was, was very cool. And then the first book was Resurrection Inc. was a science fiction, gothic horror, murder mystery that I kind of put together. But it was me writing it in the evenings and in the weekends and took me about a year to write it. And, and by then I had an agent cause I had had these short stories published and, and the agent sold it to signet books. And, and then they bought a three book fantasy trilogy after that. And then I sold some to Bantam and, and it was kind of on my way, but, but everybody where I worked, I, I Resurrection Inc., which had this really ugly cover of a skeleton of a skull with a rocket ship over it and people mm -hmm. in jump. It was nasty, but but it was my book and, and I put yeah. it out and everybody was they all knew I was as an aspiring writer. But mm -hmm. my boss, the whole department, everybody was terrified that I was going to be quitting because every paperback writer makes millions of dollars. And, of course. Yeah. Yeah, and I couldn't tell them that. I spent a year writing this novel and I got paid $4,000 for it. So mm. I allowed them to believe that I was on the verge of quitting any day. So then they kind of <laughs> kid gloves all the time. And, and, but I, and I, I met my wife at Lawrence Livermore, Rebecca, and she and I've been married for 31 years now. And we, it's wonderful. Uh, we work together and, and you don't easily give up a monthly paycheck and retirement and health insurance. And especially now health insurance is, is a, extremely difficult thing for most writers to have because it's writers don't fit under the, the cheaper umbrella. We have to pay the full price for everything. And it's Rebecca and I were paying, I've, there's another tangent, but I'm, I'm running a university program and I'm a professor at Western Colorado university. So that, that covers me with healthcare. But before that, just as freelancers, Rebecca and I, just the two of us were paying $25,000 out of pocket every year just for us. Wow. So oh, anyway, so don't quit your day job to be a <laughs> to be a writer and 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 I I didn't until we had like a year's expenses in the bank and I had I think seven New York Times bestsellers before we managed to cut cut the security blanket. Wow. Seven. You had to get seven seven of those. Wow, that's a 
it's total it's amazing but at the same time like i totally get the um i totally get the reasoning behind it it's like it's it's very it would have been very easy to just go ahead and say hey we got it let's go ahead and do it i'm yeah, glad yeah, to hear try, that you guys try, were, getting, were, try getting a mortgage from a bank when you say yeah i'm a freelance writer and i've published some books right good luck on that one yeah <laughs> so for those for those who are really just kind of getting themselves started i've i've seen different people that have that are still kind of calling themselves aspiring authors even though they've just finished writing a novel to me it's just like you, you can drop that aspiring part because you've gone farther than anyone else who just has like a, like a book sitting in their head but like what do you say to those people they have they've they put in the work they have the they have something that's out there, something that they can call their own. They just don't know like what the next steps and everything would be. These days, since you've tackled so many different ways, you've you've gone full on traditional. You've done small press. You have your own publishing company. You're doing this some terrific Kickstarter games. So you've gone like really you've run the whole gamut when it comes to when it comes to publishing. What do you say like to those people that are just like, okay, I have this, but now what? <laughs> sure, you ask that when there's two minutes left in the program. So. <laughs> well, see, the, the thing is, is it when I was starting out, there used to be basically a one path, and that was the way you did it. Yeah. That everybody knew how to do it. Most people didn't succeed, but there was still like, here's your roadmap, go there. And now it, it used to be like the Mississippi River, but now it's like the Mississippi River Delta. You get down mm. and there's suddenly there's there's 30 or more different ways to do it. And yeah. as we've discussed this hour, I didn't pick one way. I kind of picked all of the above. I am doing indie stuff. I am doing crowdfunding. I am I'm still writing like Dune books for Tor. I've just signed up for another traditionally published book because they will give you an advance and that they're going to get bookstore distribution. Yeah. A lot of authors are just putting up their Kindle Unlimited stuff and hoping to find fans, and then they're spending huge amounts of time running Amazon ads and Facebook ads and things. All of this is a gigantic learning curve. In, mm -hmm. in the old way, it used to be you wrote a book and you sent it to your agent and then you kind of didn't do anything more with it. Yeah. And now you have to be the one-man band. You have to do everything. And mm -hmm. there, there is no quick answer. Yeah. Just one, one quick plug because it's in a week and a half from today, but we run it every year. Uh, we, yeah. I run something called the Superstars Writing Seminar. It's in Colorado mm. Springs. We've done it for 13 years now. And it is about career development and professionalism and understanding the business of being a writer. And we kind of cover the gamut of indie publishing to traditional publishing. We have New York editors and agents, and we have big, we're going to have Kickstarter people there next year. And we're going to have indie publishers that are making $300,000 a month with their, their ebook wow. royalties. And I'm wow. not, but that's like, <laughs> prior to uh mm -hmm. and it, it is it is a huge it is a huge learning curve like i said and and the thing is is it changes every week mm -hmm. and i had kind of hoped to be resting on my laurels at this point and just have people sending me royalty checks all the time but that <laughs> doesn't happen you have to do all the work and i and my my graduate program is in publishing so i'm a professor i'm teaching publishing 
And mm -hmm. a lot of my students are a little more up to date than I am. So I have to keep studying constantly and learning and growing and, and, but it is something that I love and enjoy. So it's not, it's not grueling work for me. It's just, I, I wish there were more than 40 hours in a day so I could get it all done. Absolutely. Yeah. And I really just can't think of a better way to really just kind of put the stamp on this entire conversation because as Kevin has said, he has gone through so many different directions when it comes to his writing and his publishing. And that is what I offer to all of you that are listening. There really is no right way to get your work out there. What you need to do is you need to do the research. You definitely need to do the work and you need to make sure that the path that you go on is the one that you are. I don't want to say the most comfortable with because everyone does have to get outside their comfort zone just to get their books out there. But at the end of the day, what you believe is the best course at first for your writing career, it's not going to be the only course. I'm as, as someone who has books with small presses and gone the indie route. Like I've, I've, I can definitely say there's no one way to do this. And Kevin is definitely a perfect example of going as many different directions as possible. Keep all your options open, keep all your avenues open. And it's amazing what could, what could wind up being open to you. So for Kevin J. Anderson, this is George Soroy saying to all of you ever upward, and I will see you next week. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Excelsior Journeys. I hope it was both inspiring and entertaining. Special thanks to Zach Comtois for providing new music for the intro and outro. Please take a moment to leave a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe to your platform of choice by going to he'sgotit.com slash podcasts. While there, you can also fill out the application to be a guest, inquire about sponsorship opportunities, and click on the Buy Me a Coffee link if you wish to give your support to the show. All interaction is very much appreciated. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion for the show, please direct it to george at he'sgotit.com.